This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store, Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat in Omaha in caverns deep below the metro area. It's our pleasure to welcome you to episode 687 of the Two-Headed Nerd comic book podcast. I'm your head number one. My name is Matt Baum, and it's Willow Day in the Ziggurat. So be prepared for all manner of peck jokes. That's racist. I'm your head number two, the Internet's Joe Patrick, and I, for one, support our Newland friends, so no peck jokes here. Hashtag not all daikinis. <laughs> so stupid. I had to do it. It's pretty good. <laughs> In this episode, we're back to reviewing new comics from this week and last. And after that, we'll set you up with our must-read picks for next week. And then we'll give you a sneak peek of our Patreon, THN Extra, where Joe and I are going to be counting down our top five favorite comic book relaunches. We've already been fighting about it, so get ready. It's all happening in this brave new direction for THN. And it starts with an even bigger review time in the cigarette question mark. Normally, we'd talk about eight new comics, but eight wasn't enough. That's right, nerds. We heard your death threats, so we're adding three comics per week for a total of 12 reviews of new comics. We'll start with last new comic book Wednesday, November 23rd. Welcome to the new review format, Matt. Hope you survived the experience. My God, what have we done? Let's begin with... Senses shattering. <laughs> what price victory? Save those. We got to use those every week, right? Oh, sorry. You can't just dump them all out on the floor. Let's start with Fear of a Red Planet number one. This is from Aftershock. It's $4.99. It's written by Mark Sable with art and colors by Andrea Olimpieri. Here is your solicit. Mars. 50 years from now, humanity's first Martian colony is no longer self-sustaining. Under the thumb of its corporate mining overlords, the surviving colonists slave away just to pay for resupply rockets from Earth. With little or no hope of returning home, one woman has kept a fragile peace, the UN's first and only interplanetary marshal, a law woman, escaping a violent past on Earth. I'm sorry, it's Space Sheriff. Space Sheriff, I gotcha. Space Sheriff. Well, she's yeah, not a she's sheriff of space, she's a sheriff of Mars. She's like a Mars she's sheriff. Space, space Sheriff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that implies she can go anywhere and have jurisdiction. We don't know. All right. She prides herself on never having fired a shot on Mars, but when she's tasked with solving the murder of the colony's most hated man, her investigation threatens to tear the red planet apart. Written by Mark Sable, who worked on Miskatonic and Where Starships Go to Die, and illustrated by Andrea Olimpieri, who worked on Dishonored and Dark Souls, Martian Law is a near-future Western with the hard sci-fi of The Expanse and the hard-boiled gunslinging of Justified. Space Western, it's a genre I cannot seem to get enough of, and this creative team is drawing on two of my favorite TV shows. Sable's Marshall is a badass who uses the respect she's earned to keep both the company and the surly miners in line. It's a tried and true formula for a cop that gets stuff done type story. And once again, totally grabbed me. Great art by Ole and Pieri, too, whose chunky style brings a gritty realism to the story. Makes Mars look like a shitty place to live, honestly. Uh, yeah, Mars is a shitty place to live. <laughs> yeah, it's gotta be, right? Fear of a Red Planet is set in a near-future, desperate time in human space exploration that feels like it could be a prequel to The Expanse, there's a lot to like here with a promising creative team. If you're not reading Sables where starships go to die, you should be because this guy writes the hell out of gritty sci-fi. This is a buy it. Yeah, I don't really have too much to add. I, I liked it. I thought the art was good. I like the setup. I love a space western as well. This is a buy it for me. Uh, you summed it up pretty, pretty well. That's what I do here. And even I wanted that guy to die. So, <laughs> well, you know, he was a shithead. What can he do? <laughs> it was. <laughs> Tagging you in, Joe Patrick. All right. Next up is Once Upon a Time at the End of the World, number one from Boom Studios. It's $4.99. It's written by Jason Aaron with art by Alexandra Tefinki. Here's your solicit. In this post-apocalyptic tale, Maceo and Mezzi could have picked two easier to say names that are back to back like that. Have never met anyone like each other, and they'll need all the help they can get to survive a planet ravaged by environmental catastrophe. 
This epic trilogy, with each issue overflowing with 30 story pages, spans a lifetime as philosophical differences tear at the threads holding Maceo and Mezzi together. Will they and the earth beneath their feet ultimately be torn apart? I'm not going to bother reading all that stuff because I just said their names and they know they're great. Uh, you might recognize uh, Jason Aaron, you know, Alexander Tefenki, uh, you know him most recently from Images, The Good Asian, which is a very good comic book. Yeah, he's kicking ass on that book. Later in the show, I'm going to say some pretty unkind things about a Jason Aaron comic, <laughs> but this issue helped remind me that Jason Aaron thrives when he's playing in his own sandbox. What the solicit doesn't tell you is that Maceo and Mezzi are just kids. They're forced into two radically different lives. Mezzi might be a badass, but she's still in over her head. Maceo lives a lonely life, completely sheltered from the broken world outside his tower and completely unequipped to leave. So, of course, the story is going to throw these two together. Oh, yeah. It's a bit fairy tale-ish. It's maybe even a little Shakespearean. We don't get too much insight into the characters yet, but a final scene drawn by the great Nick Dragota, uh, who you will recognize from projects like East of West, hints, oh, and also Jonathan Hickman's uh, FF. He drew FF. That's true. Hints at a deep connection years in the making. Alexander Tafenki's art does an excellent job setting the post-apocalyptic stage and capturing the youthful innocence of both stars. Now, I really enjoyed Once Upon a Time at the End of the World number one, and I'm looking forward to seeing where Aaron takes the story from here. I'm giving it a buy it. Yeah, Tafenki is fantastic. And it's like, this is loose, but in a good way where it's like spastic. And there's all this stuff going on. It's super detailed. And Earth just looks like garbage, a gigantic garbage dump. And I'll tell you what, if they make a show out of this and they don't get the kid from Sweet Tooth to play Maceo, they are doing it wrong. That's like <laughs> yeah, all I can do is pretty, hear that yeah. kid's voice. <laughs> like he's perfect for it. He's so innocent and sweet and just trying to do his thing. And he was trapped in this like rad building. And this person from the outside shows up like everything sucks outside here, dude. <laughs> no, this is a lot of fun. And you're right. We are going to say some stuff about Jason Aaron later. So, Jason, if you're listening, great job here, man. You're kicking ass. I hope you still like us. You're one for one so far, Jason. <laughs> you know, we haven't talked about for a while on this show, Joe, Star Wars. We don't read enough Star Wars comics. So I picked Star Wars Yoda, number one from Marvel. It's I would argue that that's not true. <laughs> I, I mean, think we uh, Star- read just the right amount. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> This is from Marvel. It's $4.99. It's written by Kavan Scott with art by Nico Leon. Here's your solicit. All new adventures for the greatest Jedi of all time. To some, he was a legend. To others, he was a teacher. Now, Yoda's all but forgotten, living in exile and haunted by the past. As a strangely familiar voice echoes through the swamps of Dagobah, Yoda must revisit the many lessons he has given over the years. From the days of the High Republic to the chaos of the Clone Wars. In the first of three story arcs, a desperate cry for help reaches the Jedi Council on Coruscant, and only Yoda can respond. But how far will he go to protect a community from attack? So it seems like this Yoda is going to follow the recent Obi-Wan series formula with the character reflecting on different parts of their life. Scott's story isn't bad, but it's also fairly boilerplate so far. Yoda's helping some down and out, I don't know, new race of Star Wars alien that are being threatened by another new race of mean star wars aliens i don't know yeah, if that's it's like the it's like the murlocs and the angrier murlocs kind of, right like the murlocs and the bodybuilding murlocs <laughs> right yeah i don't know if the plot comes off as compelling as the first issue of obi-wan but this is a setup and there is a compelling development for the character in the end leon does a great job capturing yoda's likeness without making him look cartoonish and that's not easy the opening scenes in Dagobah are beautifully colored by Dono Sanchez Almara, and it really helps establish Yoda's presence. I've never been a fan of the flipping and fighting Yoda we got in the prequels, but this creative team handles the action very well without it getting silly. Writing Yoda and making him as relatable as, say, a young Obi-Wan is certainly going to be more of a challenge, but this creative team is doing a solid job so far. I just need a little more before I can call this required Yoda material. I'm giving it a skim it. 
that's re- required Yoda material. I didn't know there was a scale for well, that. Well, you know, I mean, there's people who are like Yoda. That's my dude. I like him. Essential. But I, this is goes. This goes on the list. This goes under essential Yoda. Uh, but I only want the best Yoda. Uh, you know. That. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> uh, I. You know what? I mean, this was fine. It's fine. It's a miniseries. It's fine. It's just one story. So it's not like. If this doesn't sell, it might sell. Who knows? But if this doesn't sell, it's not like we're going to get another Yoda story that's like about a different part of Yoda's life. You know, it's just going to be this is a Yoda story and it is what it is. It's fine. The art's fine. The story's fine. It's cute, even. And I liked that he came to the rescue of the skinny Murlocs. You know, it's a skimmit. <laughs> All right, it's part one of the test to see how big of a jerk I am. It's <laughs> yeah. Dark Crisis. <laughs> yeah, watch out, folks, because it gets bumpy from here. Yeah, it, boy. <laughs> dark Crisis, the Dark Army number one from DC. It's five ninety nine. I just I'm saying that with emphasis because the more I say numbers that big this week, the more I start to resent it. Yeah, it's written by Mark Wade and various. I mentioned Mark Wade. Because he's really the only draw. The artist by Freddie Williams, the two and various. Don't get excited about that first part. Here's your solicit. As Pariah's Dark Army continues its march around the globe, Damian Wayne thinks he's got an answer as to why Pariah is able to control his most dangerous cosmic villains. Uh, that, I said that wrong, but you get it. And he's taking Red Canary and Dr. Light on the road to see if he's right. Okay. <laughs> Don't miss this thrilling Dark Crisis tie-in with direct connections to the present and future of the DCU. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I don't know about that last part. <laughs> Comic book tie-ins live a thankless existence. If they do their job well, they're forgotten six months after the event is over. If not, they're looked at with disdain every time the event comes up in conversation. Unfortunately, the Dark Army is one of the latter. It certainly wants you to think it's important, with Damien's team of random weirdos like Red Canary adventuring through the JLAP universe, no joke, Yeah. in an attempt to rescue Justice League Incarnate from the Great Darkness. But there's nothing enjoyable about the execution at all. The characters spend the entire issue sniping at each other, except sideways, who's just happy to be remembered when he's not busy getting eaten by Captain Carrot. Artist Jack Herbert didn't get the memo about Damien's age and instead draws him like a college football linebacker. And Freddie Williams Jr. or the second or the two, who I know is great, I know it, delivers some of the worst art I've ever seen him produce. It's terrible. Yeah. Sometimes event tie-ins are good. Dark Crisis, The Dark Army is not one of those times. Leave it. Do not waste your money. Yeah, this took me right back to all the Dark Knight's metal bullshit, where it was just like, there were so many tie-ins, and they all felt the same. They're just like, everything's horrible, and everything is nightmarish, and everything's covered with spikes, and when the spikes have razor blades, and the razor blades are on fire. Like, okay, I get it. Like, <laughs> great. But I will say one thing about Dark Knight's Metal tie-ins. Most of them looked pretty good. They were garbage. I didn't care about them. There sure, much there. right. Yes, yes. The art was great in yeah, most. Art was pretty good. And when you tell me Freddie Williams the two is going to be on a book, I go, that guy's great. I almost wonder if he was helped by other artists or something. Or he stepped in to help one or the other. Because this certainly does not look like his art. And I find it. It's like some parts of it are literally scribbled. Literally. Yes. And like there's, I know what this guy's art looks like. And I know if this guy was doing something different, I would still be able to go, okay, that's Freddie Williams, the two. I could not identify his art here. This was bad. It looked I, bad. I know, I know, I know. Most people use the word "literally" incorrectly, but Freddie Williams II literally wrote the book about digital art. Yes, drawing digital art for comics. Like I own that book. Yeah, the art book, the art in this comic book is garbage. It's bad. It really is bad. It, it kind of looks like that new AI, you know, art that you can like type in a bunch of stuff <laughs> and it can be like, uh, Robin, but Damien fighting. So fighting jail apes or whatever. And like yeah. lots of action. And the AI goes, all right, well, I don't know anything about him. So he must be seven feet tall and a total badass. Sounds cool. Here you go. 
what happened it's, here? Yeah, it's a bad. It's a bad. This time. is bad. This is just bad. Leave it. Hope you packed your psychedelics, kitties, because I am reviewing Doctor Strange: Fall Sunrise number one. It's from Marvel. It's four ninety nine. It's written and drawn by Trad Moore. Here is your solicit. From the mind of Trad Moore. No shit. Doctor Strange awakens alone in a distant world, not his own, lost of purpose and surrounded by danger. The wandering sorcerer must explore this land of blades and mystery to unravel arcane secrets and escape the deadly horrors that lie in wait. From the fantastical mind of creator Trad Moore, who worked on Silver Surfer Black, comes a strange story like you've never seen. Do not come to this story looking for continuity with the current Strange series where Clea is still trying to bring Steven back from the dead. <laughs> Instead, Tradmore cracks his head open and pours his brain onto the page, creating a curvy, almost Picasso-esque abstract Doctor Strange story that pushes the definitions of psychedelic. There is probably a story here, but it hasn't quite come together in this first chapter. That said, this is a comic you buy for the art and by the hoary hosts of Hoggoth. It is beautiful. Eat some shrooms. Curl up with Doctor Strange Fall Sunrise number one. This is insane Marvel magic visual storytelling at its best. And if we don't get a blacklight poster of the wraparound cover, someone at Marvel is going to get a fat lip. I am giving this a buy it. It's just gorgeous. This is absolutely gorgeous. Yes, I agree. Like, there's a story. It's in there. <laughs> it's definitely in there. <laughs> don't ask me to repeat it. I, I can't. The art is beautiful. And my first thought, uh, Picasso, I think, is the, the wrong call because he was very, it was different. He was different kind of. Uh, Dolly-esque, <laughs> you know? You're right. Like, it's very drippy. This is Dolly-esque. You're right. It's very surrealist. It's, it's... uh it's really something it's really something to look at. It also it also looks it's it's got its Asian influences like on its sleeve with the tiger imagery. Yeah. And I like I've seen that kind of like jagged line before in things. Definitely. Yeah. So it's it is really just it's just a treat to look at. And for that, it's worth the price of admission. It, it's a buy it for me as well. Uh, even though I don't know what the hell it's about. I don't either. But Tradmore, crazy person and wildly talented. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yep. That for dude. Sure. Speaking of things that aren't great entry points, it's G.I. Joe, a real American hero, number 300. And I know we weren't going to do transitions, but I couldn't resist. <laughs> this is from IDW. It's six ninety nine. It's written by Larry Hama with art by S.L. Gallant. Here's your solicit. All in part five. This is it. The final G.I. Joe, a real American hero story arc at IDW Publishing comes to a blockbuster conclusion. Does it? Does it? Well, <laughs> I mean, they're done with it. Yeah, I guess. Using a brand new casino on Cobra Island as a front, Cobra has been busy resurrecting both dangerous villains and heroes behind the scenes, all in the hope of creating the deadliest Cobra army ever. Will the warriors of G.I. Joe foil their arch enemy's evil plan? Before it's too late, or will the devious revanche robots have the last word over both the Joes and Cobra? The game for the fate of the world has reached its calamitous finale, sort of, and it's time for every single player to go all in. After 40 non-consecutive years, Larry Hama's G.I. Joe epic finally comes to a close, and it's just as nuts as you might expect. I could spend the entire episode recapping the issue and diving deep into all the nooks and crannies, but nobody wants that, least of all me. Suffice it to say that Hama continued to make the world of G.I. Joe his own long after most of us claimed to grow out of it. Why does Serpentor have luscious brown locks and a fabulous mustache? I couldn't handle it. That is who <laughs> knows. Not my Serpentor. <laughs> Why do I don't think it's our Serpentor at all? I think that's the yeah, point. It's I think like this some is a new no, Serpentor. He says I've been cloned or whatever. You know, uh, he's Serpentor Khan, so I think he might be a little bit more on the Genghis side. Why do the battle android troopers look like Gogo from Kill Bill? It does not matter. <laughs> 
Did they bring Snake Eyes back from the dead or clone him? And now there's two of them. There's two. Reply, Hazy, try again later because you don't (laughs) see that second one. What did carry through the haze of things I had no context for was Hama's obvious love and affection for this franchise and these characters, which is just as strong today as it was when I was a kid reading, watching, and playing in the mid-80s. I'm not familiar with SL Gallant's work, but they did a decent job juggling not only two armies of characters, but also boats, planes, robots, jetpacks, tanks, etc., etc., etc. I also kind of felt it was appropriate that this final issue ended on a cliffhanger, and I hope Hama gets to pick the story back up again someday, just like he picked it up from Marvel with IDW. It's kind of, you know, kind of nice. I'm giving this a skim it. No, it is not reader friendly. No, it is not a jumping on <laughs> no, point. No, it's not. It's none of those. But things. as an old school fan, it was kind of fun to like read this and be like, oh, I recognize that plane or I know those guys or I had that guy or that's Tommy Cobra Commander's son. He's got one eye. Yeah. Like it all came flooding back to me. I fell out of love with G.I. Joe at some point and this kind of really touched something in me. It's a skim it. Gross. So. Larry Hama in an interview recently. Deep down in me. Touch something deep down. (laughs) Stop that. Larry Hama in an interview recently mentioned that he has a part of the relaunch that's happening at Skybound. So I don't know if that means that this story is going to continue or not. I also don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. Like, I know this is selling well. I know G.I. Joe fans love it. I'm not taking anything away from Larry Hama. The guy is absolutely a living legend. And I think it's wonderful that he gets to continue writing G.I. Joe like this. I thought the art was very good. But your IDW, right? You have faithfully put these comics out for years now. You've got a fan base that loves this stuff. And you don't get to say a proper goodbye. It just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right. Like the last page is literally like, to be continued? Question mark? Like, come on. Seriously, I mean, yeah, we can't I, give them a send off here. Thanks, IDW, and all. it just—I feel bad for him. That's all I'm saying. This is fine. I'm giving it a skim maybe as well. Maybe IDW was in on it, you know, pass the torch. Uh, and maybe they are, and that's extremely respectful if that's the case. And I, I think that's awesome if that's the case. I will give this a skim it as well, uh, because look, I've read a lot of, I've, I've popped in on Larry Hama's GI Joe at IDW. And I think it's some no slam on Larry Hama. All right. I'm not taking anything away from you. You are a legend, sir. I think it's some of the least interesting G.I. Joe stuff they've put out. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's it certainly caters to that part of you that remembers watching it on TV as a kid. And if if you're into that, good for you. I'm glad you enjoy that. I would like I kind of hope when they go to Skybound, we can reinvent G.I. Joe a little bit. The way that IDW sort of reinvented and breathed new life into the Transformers. I feel like they, they clamped on to that whole, that old cartoon G.I. Joe idea and never let it go, which is fine. But I think what they did with the Transformers was way more interesting and entertaining. And I'd like to see something like that happen at Skybound. We'll see. I don't know. Skim it for me. Comic Wednesday, November 30th. Jumping to this week, this is Koshki and Hell number one from Dark Horse. It's $3.99. It's written by Mike Mignola with art by Ben Stenbeck. Here's your solicit. The world above may be over and Hellboy gone with it, but Koshki is still in hell, content with his wine and his books, until an old face arrives and brings Koshki a critical task. An old and powerful foe is returning, and Koshki must take up his sword and defend the city from destruction. Mignola returns to hell to reunite with one of his favorite collaborators, Ben Stenbeck. I wonder how his other collaborators feel about that. Who worked on Frankenstein Underground, Witchfinder in the Service of Angels, and Baltimore, and also Koshki the Deathless. Returning characters from Hellboy and Hell, and more! Mignola and crew have figured out a way to keep telling stories set post-Frogpocalypse. That was the time that frog demons effectively ended human life on Earth in the pages of BPRD. And they're doing most of it without Hellboy. If you didn't read Koshki, The Deathless, you'll be okay, thanks to a brief recap. Actually, it's kind of a funny recap, but you should. Unlike Hellboy, who bumbles his way through most of his adventures, Koshki is a confident warrior, and while Hell seems 
pretty chill compared to the last time Hellboy was there. Stenbeck does an incredible job on the art here. He's not aping Magnola. His style is much more detailed, but he definitely captures the feel readers expect from a Hellboy universe. If Hellboy isn't going to be around, I have no problem reading Koshki's adventures, especially when the art is this good. I'm giving it a buy it. Yep, I liked it. I mean, part of me is sad that the Hellboy world is gone, like the Hellboy Earth is gone, but they're still doing it, man. They're still going strong. And I I thought this was really, really good. And I didn't read, I don't know if I read the Deathless or not. I it don't was think I did. It was very good. It was very But good. I didn't, like, I didn't miss a beat. I read this and I was fine. It's a buy it. And I love Ben Stenbeck. I love He's Ben so Stenbeck. Good. He's so good. And I got to say, it's one thing like you can blow up the world in Marvel or DC. They'll fix it. Don't worry. It sure feels a lot more permanent in the Hellboy universe, right? I mean, yeah. Now all the comics take place in hell. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know how they fix this. Or deep underground, like in the Frankenstein one. It's the moment you've all been waiting for. Justice Society of America, number one from DC Comics. It's $4.99. It's written by Jeff Johns with art by Michael Jannon and various. Here's your solicit. The JSA returns in this monthly series by writer Jeff Johns and artist Michael Jannon with Justice Society of America, the new golden age, part one. The world's first and greatest superheroes return, or do they? No. A long lost hero from the JSA <laughs> crashes into our era and with a grave warning, but it's too late. A mysterious and malevolent enemy has invaded the entire history of the JSA, and an all-new team must come together to defeat it. But what deadly secret does this messenger from beyond keep? Where are they from? And why is all of this happening now? Only the Time Masters know. And why are we pretending that we don't know who they're talking about? She's on the cover. <laughs> JSA number one is tailor-made to hit several of my usual comic book emotional triggers. Legacy, check. Starman stuff? Check. Time travel weirdness? Check. So why didn't it? John's story is very grim, which is at odds with the JSA's usual tone. Okay, time out. I just mentioned that on Cover to Cover last week, and you guys were like, what are you talking about? Jeff Johns got super dark and grim with all his JSA stories. Yeah, not all down. of them, but his Flash had a harder edge. His Flash had right. a harder edge. But his JSA was not grim. This was grim. All this right, was all right. dark. The coloring, like, it all took place at night. It was, all, it was, like, very dark. But you're right. I did say that, and you did bring it up. Smoke it. That's all I'm saying. I just agreed with you. Don't be a jerk. Up your butt, Joe Patrick. Okay, we spend most of the issue in the future with the new Huntresses JSA, but are given little reason to care about most of them before they get horribly murdered. Well, spoiler, which, didn't, which does not come as a surprise because we already knew about the time travel murders. All right, all right, all right. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. But Michael Jannon's art is gorgeous, as is the guest art by Jerry Ordway, Scott Collins, Brandon Peterson, and Steve Lieber. I really wanted to love Justice Society of America number one, but. If I were to compare it to its counterpart from 1999, which had kind of a similar kickoff, it's like mm, weird being traveling around murdering heroes. Yeah. Only the we must the we only the JSA can help. This issue spends too much time on setting up a story that we have already been prepped for. We already had the new golden age. We already had uh, like months and months of the JSA returning. In the pages of things like Doomsday Clock and Dark Knight's Metal and sure. Justice League. Sure. And it should have been more focused on rebuilding what was torn away with the new 52. I'm hoping that this will read better when it's finished. I just, as a first issue, it wasn't what I wanted. Similar to how you felt about the recent Fantastic Four number one. Okay. I'm giving this a skim it for now. You know what? I like this more than I like the new Golden Age issue, quite honestly. Oh, well, yeah, it's easier to follow. From yeah, one. one, it's way easier to follow. Two, the art is stunning. The art is, and the like, art is very good. everybody that worked on this is very good, but Michael Jannon's art, oh my God, but just beautiful work. And I didn't mind like seeing like these new justice, this new JSA that was like some bad guys here and there and stuff like that. Like that was kind of fun. Yeah, they all get killed real quick. I totally agree with you. 
there, there's no mystery here. We already know about this. Like, why are we doing it this way? And I would argue that's my problem with all the crap that's happened in the golden age. Had you started with this and gone, here's your GSA number one, like, whoa, we got a mystery that's set up right here in the pages of this. What is happening? I want to see what happens next. It may have worked better. That's DC editorial. That's Jeff Johns working with that. Who knows? We don't know. I'm going to give this a buy it. I actually enjoyed it. And I thought this was way more focused than what they did previously with Flashpoint and the Golden Age one shot. And see, and I'm kind of the opposite. I think that this would have been better served in one of the preludes and had this issue be about the JSA kind of reinstating themselves. And then, oh, shit, Huntress fell through a time portal onto our table. Sure. Yeah. I mean, maybe something like that. Maybe. But, you know, we'll see how the storyline shakes out. My turn. And I'll tell you what, I didn't see this one coming. Uh, Peek at how the sausage is made. Matt doesn't always look at the comic before he picks which one he's going to review. I picked plush. Number one. It's from images. Three ninety nine. It's written by Doug Wagner with art by Daniel Hilliard. Here's your solicit. Miniseries premiere. Serial killing cannibalistic furries. Plastic and vinyl creators Doug Wagner and Daniel Hilliard are back. This time they've recruited colors extraordinaire Rico Renzi for the disturbing neon horror spin on fursuit psychopaths and bizarre love. Neon horror is in quotes. Maybe a thing that I don't know about. We'll see. Maybe it's a thing now. Maybe (laughs) Maybe they're making it a thing. Maybe they're making it a thing. In plush, Devin Fulcher is coerced into attending his first furry convention when he accidentally happens upon a group of furries devouring a human, the insanity begins. Do they just want Devin for dinner or something much more wicked? I am going to stay respectful here. If you've been waiting for a dark comedic story with a furry side story, your wait is over. I think. There was a lot to take in here, and people that dress up in animal costumes to connect with others that do the same was the least of the weirdness in the story. While this is a comedy, it asks the reader to accept some ridiculous relationship situations and drops characters into the story in very convenient positions to keep that plot moving. Keep in mind, I'm not even talking about the furry aspect of the story, okay? (laughs) Also, there may be a horror aspect. I didn't really get enough of it to know. Well, I mean, they're cannibals, so yeah. But is that actually happening, or is he seeing something? Because there's something else going on here, and I don't know if he's hallucinating or that's really a uh, thing. I mean, I, I think that's the story, isn't it? it's what they're telling me in the solicit. It didn't quite come across as what no, I'm saying. I'm saying that's the story is figuring out what's happening is the story. I suppose. Like, I, I, yeah. I think what I'm saying is I don't know that the art or the writing did a good enough job to put me in a position where I had to decide, yes, I have to figure out if this is hallucination or yes, that really just happened to the character and that's crazy, you know? (laughs) But I mean, what if not being sure if what you saw was real is part of the design? What if it's a feature, not a bug? So that could be the third part, you know? I was a little confused with a lot of it. I like the art. Hilliard has a very good cartoonish style. The art is very good. But the script never really brought the comedy or the horror home. I can only give this a skim it. Matt, I'm proud of you. You did a great job. Being respectful. Don't egg it on. Just back off, okay? Because I, I want it. It's like, going to come out. <laughs> you don't know. It doesn't have to come out. You are in control. You're in control, That's not buddy. true. <laughs> I've never proved that. <laughs> it, it's a lifestyle I don't understand, but I get that it's a thing, and it's certainly no weirder than many other things I'm that people are going to mute my mic. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah, please. You can do that. You can stop. I didn't really connect to that part of the story. I mean, I get that the guy, like, I guess in the sense of the main character being uncomfortable with the whole thing, I'm like, okay, well, yeah, he doesn't connect with it either. But I guess if my point is, if that part of the story is important, then they didn't do a good job. I don't know that. that I don't know on that, that part of the story. I don't know that the idea that the people involved are furries is important to the story so much as the fact that they are in costume when they're doing these murders. Okay. I'll give you that. But like, yeah, 
And again, I like maybe that's splitting hairs, but like it clearly there's a theme going on here with these guys's work because their previous two series are also about manufacturing material. Right. They're on this kind of theme kick telling stories about different kinds of, you know, material that people interact with. And I'm giving this a skim it because I, I agree that like, it's just, it, I found it a little bit hard to, to connect to. I did really like the art. I think that these guys are on to something. I just don't know what it is. They're, on, they're, they're definitely on something. I'll say that. Okay. <laughs> hey. Moving on to the Superman Kal-El Returns special. It's from DC Comics. It's $5.99. It's written and drawn by this list of people that I'm just about to read because they put their names in the solicit. Here's your solicit. Written by Mark Wade, Cena Grace, Alex Segura, and Marv Wolfman. Art by Max Rayner, Dean Haspiel, Jack Herbert, and Riley Brown. Clayton Henry drew the first story, not Max Rayner. So that's a typo. They forgot to change something. Kal-El has returned from his long sojourn to War World, but what ramifications does this hold for the broader DC universe? In this special, we'll spotlight Kal-El's reunion with the Dark Knight, Jimmy Olsen, the Justice League, and Lex Luthor. Plus, witness the never-before-revealed look at the moments leading to Superman's abduction by Pariah in the Dark Crisis event. The march toward Action Comics 1050 continues in this essential special volume. This anthology of standalone stories doesn't do much more than remind readers that Superman is a character made stronger by his supporting cast. The execution is uneven, even a little strange in the case of American Splendor and Bizarro Comics artist Dean Haspiel's presence. But the Batman story by Mark Wade and Clayton Henry and the Lex Luthor story by Marv Wolfman and Jack Herbert, who I previously said didn't know the difference between Damian Wayne and a college football linebacker, they stand out. In the end, the Kal-El Returns one-shot delivers a lot of great character moments that prove that the Man of Steel offers more to the DCU than super strength and invulnerable skin. I'm giving this a buy it. I did not hate this, okay? I'm not saying that at all. I thought the first story was perfectly good. I don't know that I needed three stories of... There were four stories. Or, pardon me, you're right. Four stories of feel good, Superman's back, let's hug. Oh, man, it's so great to see you, man. The Dean Haspiel stuff was really uneven, and I didn't. See, I eat that shit up. I'm I totally did not, the opposite. I know of you do, and I didn't get the end of the story where Jimmy's like, "Yeah, that's the picture I wanted." That didn't make a lot of sense to me. And after the first story, that was just sort of feel good. Superman's back. That's all I needed. I didn't need the rest of it. This doesn't get me real excited for Action Ten Fifty that's coming up. And I know they're telling that story in the regular book. This just felt skippable to me. I'm giving a skim it. I think you're skippable. <laughs> Not as skippable as you are. What do you think of that? It's Superman! We're going to talk relaunches later, but Joe Patrick, Jason Aaron, is relaunching the Avengers, and we love it, right? We yeah, love the yeah, Avengers. We can all agree about how much we love the Avengers. <laughs> Avengers Assemble, Alpha, number one. It's Alpha number one. We love that around here. It's from Marvel Comics. It's $5.99, reasonably priced. I'll say that. It's written by Jason Aaron with art by Brian Hitch. You're going to eat some crow when Alpha number two comes out. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes. Here's your solicit. Uniting the Avengers, Avengers Forever, and Avengers of 1 million BC in an epic saga that forms the capstone to Jason Aaron Sarah on the Avengers. From throughout time and the far corners of the multiverse, the mightiest heroes of all the Earths are assembling as never before for a battle beyond all imagining. A war that will take us from the prehistoric beginnings of an Earth under assault by the greatest villains who have ever lived to the watchtower that stands at the dark heart of all and the always, where an army of unprecedented evil now rises. Just call it the bleed, you guys. You wanted to call it that. It's the it's the source wall meets the bleed. Just call it that. Oh, it's this is the DC inning of the Avengers. Yeah. No question. The biggest Avengers saga in Marvel history begins now. After four long years and nearly 100 issues, including spinoffs, minis, one shots, etc. Jason Aaron's Avengers finally begins to start getting to some kind of point. Unfortunately, 
All this event kickoff issue did was remind me how little has happened. It all seems big with stakes that couldn't be higher. Sure. But this book is in almost the exact same place as it was when I checked in last time at issue number 50. This issue in particular is nothing but filler as the Avengers 1 million BC and the Avengers of 2022 spend most of it pounding on each other while exclaiming how stupid it is that they're pounding on each other. By the time Dr. Doom shows up in his girlfriend's suit, I can no longer be bothered to care. It doesn't help at all that Brian Hitch's art is pretty unimpressive here. Like the Dark Army one-shot, Avengers Assemble Alpha exists only to con readers out of another few bucks. I'm giving this a leave it. Yeah, this was weird, man. Because like, you know what I like about the Avengers? They're not the JLA. You know what I like about the JLA? They're not the Avengers. They do different things. So why is Jason Aaron trying to do this? Why do we need to get this multiversal Avengers gods and Avengers that have always been around and Avengers legacy? Like, we don't need that shit. What makes the Avengers... I mean, Spider-Verse, bro. It changed the game for Marvel. uh, It's a whole thing now. I mean, sure. And then, you know what? I would argue that works for Spider-Man. There's always been weirdness like that. I don't need this for my Avengers. I just don't. And I agree. Like all the beats are here. It's huge. It's it's the threats are massive. And like, oh my God. And Brian Hitch is here drawing planets cracking in half. And it feels soulless. It feels unimportant. Like I, I just, I don't care. I got to give this a leave it. It does. Yes, it does feel so- I don't soulless. Care. Uh, he keeps doubling down on the stuff that I don't care about star right, it's brand. like oh look it's the the star brand the, the phoenix the avengers of the 1 million avengers bc of 1 million bc the, oh boy yeah okay. the multiversal avenger the all rider and like oh wow he could drive anything oh wow <laughs> i just don't care i'm done and i don't care i'm sorry jason i love you i'm ready for a new creative i'm team. ready for a new creative team and you they had a chance to restart stuff and it's here's just some more here's a special with some more. It's like you finished Thanksgiving dinner, right? It was really good. Well, here's more Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> like, okay, hold on. We're sticking in Marvel for Planet Hulk World Breaker number one. Speaking of, do you want some more? This is from Marvel. It's $4.99. It's written by Greg Pack with art by Manuel Garcia and Ramon Box. Here's your solicit. A thousand years from now on the planet Sakar, a young woman with green skin searches for the legendary Green Scar to help save her brother from a group of apocalyptic cultists and sentinels, maybe. I don't know. But which Hulk will she find? And after all these years, is he truly the Sakar son who will save us all or the world breaker who will destroy us? I mean, it's in his name. We get it. A shocking expansion and culmination of the mythos of Sakar and the heart of the Hulk's from Planet Hulk scribe Greg Pack and visionary Devil's Reign artist Manuel Garcia. Just in time, too. This is very timely. This is good. Marvel sends us back to Sakaar to see how things are going a thousand years from now, and the only thing more confusing than asking myself why is how the hell did Sentinels get here? (laughs) Manuel Garcia is great on art, but this creative team has a lot of explaining to do if they want to sell me on this story. And there isn't much to sell me on in this first story. The second story is still written by Pack, but the art by Ramon Box was not good. I get that Scar was mentioned on the final episode of She-Hulk, but that seems to be the only reason we get this backup story. I didn't mind the Gamma Flight mini Scar appeared in last year, but certainly didn't need a follow-up exploring the character searching for a purpose while I searched for a reason to care. There might be something to come back for in the first story, but both of these felt like they could have just been backups in a Hulk annual or something. Why are we doing this now? I'm giving this a skim it. Yeah, I mean, it's another one of those symbiote Spider-Man, extreme X-Men, like one of those revivals from a time you remember fondly. Is anyone excited about these, though? That's my question. Is anyone getting fired up about these? I don't. I mean, they must, right? They keep doing that. I don't know. Call us in cover to cover. Tell me we're wrong. Tell Matt, Joe, you guys are jerks. I love this shit. I would love to hear from anybody. I mean, we are jerks, but are we wrong? <laughs> I don't what, think we're that's wrong. Really that's the thing. And we both like Greg Pack. And we both liked World War Hulk and yes. Planet Hulk. That was fun. But you know what I don't need to do? Go back. <laughs> I don't need to yeah, do it. <laughs> I, 
yeah, like you said, like this is a skim it. It uh, I I agree with what you said about the art. I liked the art some of the time and some of the time I didn't. Yeah. The story did nothing for me. It, it just didn't. And uh, and I and I'm sorry about that. Because I do like Greg Pack, but I was not at all invested in the plight of these characters a thousand years from now. Yeah. That's a long time. That's a big ask to want me to still care about characters that should have probably never been seen again. Yep. It's a skim. It's a skim for me. All of these have been, we haven't bumped into one of these like weird specials that we're like, yeah, this is the one. Okay. I see why they did it. They've all just been whatever. We've got links to more info on all these comics in our show notes if you want to know more. But enough of this foolishness. 16 new comics. What were we thinking and whose idea was this? I don't know. It was yours and my voice oh, is yeah, gone. It was my idea. <laughs> and now we've got to pick one to join the THN permanent collection. Matt, which comic in this pile are you bagging and forwarding? hard for me but I, it's got to be dr strange the fall sunrise i just i adore trad more i don't know where the story's going and i don't care because that dude is so friggin talented and it's just it's a masterpiece of his art it's a masterpiece give it to doc strange yeah it's fair for me it's superman return it's kal-el returns because whereas you are a total grumpus about it all i want is a comic book where Superman is being best friends with people and just hugging people. Just That's like, right. I, like I'm like, no, no yeah. joke that moment. <laughs> and you know, the one, if you read it, that moment in the Mark Wade story, uh, like I teared up. Sure. I was like, yeah, it, damn it. That's it. I just don't, that's all I ever wanted. I just don't need to read four of those. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> we just talked about a dozen damn new comics. We want to hear from you. What did you think of these books? Did we get it right? Are we totally wrong? Are we way off base? We've got a great place to do it. Cover to cover. We do it on Saturdays, 1030 Central Time. Call in live or just hang out in our Discord and chat with us. Let's talk about these new comics. in better shape if we want to maintain this kind of review schedule, Joey. For now, let's head up to the Sanctum Sanctorum where we can soak our aching muscles in the ice bath of Imhotep so we don't cramp up. And let's tell these nerds about our must-read picks for next week! Next week, I'm excited for Captain America Sentinel of Liberty number 7 from Marvel Comics. It's $3.99. It's written by Colin Kelly and Jackson Lanzig. With art by Carmen Carnero, here's your solicit. The invader starts here. Just when Captain America is ready to quit his pursuit of the outer circle, he receives intel on their next move and a reminder that Steve Rogers is never without friends. Sharon Carter returns to help Steve assemble his allies for a new mission, but some shadows reach farther than even the world's best spies can predict. The current Captain America books are really great. They're outstanding. They're outstanding. Both. I'm giving a I'm giving a slight edge to Sentinel of Liberty because it's got that Bucky action I crave. And uh this like conspiracy storyline with the outer circle and yeah. the secret history of America and the origin of Captain America's shield has been super compelling. It's great, yeah. And this is the next chapter, and it's like, all is lost. Bucky has gone over to the dark side. Bring in Sharon Carter and everybody else. Like, bring in the old allies. Let's get stuff done. Like, I'm a sucker for that. I am pumped for the new storyline. Yeah, Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing, man. They are they are two of my... They're so exciting, and I love every project they've been working on. My pick for next week... All Against All, number one from Image Comics is $3.99. It's written by Alex Packnadel with art by Casper Wingard. Here is your solicit. Writer Alex Packnadel, who works on DC vs. Vampires and All Out War and Giga. And artist Casper Wingard, who worked on Homesick Pilots. And letterer Hassan Atsmi Ilau. I Man, you had to say it last time and I f***ed it up this time. Not even close. Sorry, Hassan. Present a primal vision of humanity gone terribly wrong. 
In all against all, it is the distant future. Earth is long gone. But a race of alien conquerors knows, as the operators have preserved its most savage animals in an artificial jungle environment they barely understand. With no bodies of their own, the operators move from world to world, harvesting bodies for organic exosuits they use to wage their endless wars. Ignored and underestimated by his captors is the habitat's sole human specimen. Helpless! However, when their efforts to find and harvest an apex predator intensify, he gives them far more than they bargained for! Featuring a variant covers by a ton of people. Look, I love Packnadal. I love Wingard. Packnadal's a friend of the show. We interviewed him a while back. He's a great writer. I don't care so much about DC versus vampires, but just like we made fun of Tom Taylor for doing all that like extraneous DC shit, people love it, and I guess it's pretty good. I don't know. This sounds crazy, though. I love Casper Wingard. His art I do too. is I do too. amazing. Excited for this one. What's the trade of the week for next week? The THN trade of the week is Funny Creek from Dark Horse. It's $22.99. It's written by, get this, Raphael Scavone and Raphael Albuquerque. Yeah, they're a tag team, of course. They're probably they're Raphael's. They're probably brothers. Uh, I don't think that's how that works. <laughs> The art is by Eduardo Medeiros. Here's your solicit. Running from a terrible trauma at home, Lily magically falls inside her favorite cartoon show, but the bright world of Funny Creek isn't as far from the pains of the real world as she had hoped. A thrilling adventure ensues where Lily must overcome her troubles and make her way home. This was a comicsology original collected in print for the first time, which is good because you probably could find it on comicsology. Not if you wanted to. <laughs> hey uh, but this is a, a new graphic novel written by Raphael Albuquerque, which I think a co-written, which I think is super cool. And the art looked really cute. And I think it sounds great. Let us know if our picks of the week loosened up your glutes or chilled you to the bone. Over to our Discord and the new comics channel. And don't forget to tell us what you're reading while you're there. Before we get out of here, it's time for a sneak peek of our THN Extra. When you support THN on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month, you get access to all kinds of extra content just like this. It is top five time again in the Ziggurat, and we thought since the JSA was getting a relaunch, it was time to talk about our personal top five comic book relaunches now don't add us okay i don't want you coming at me like this is our it's subjective yes this is subjective it's ours we're not saying the most important of all time or anything like that right and look like here's just if you want some semantics here's some semantics not every relaunch is a reboot right so we're not all talking earth shattering reboots no <laughs> is that how we're saying that now reboots <laughs> uh yeah okay uh, also like I said, it is subjective. Yeah. And yeah, so, so buttons. <laughs> he, already, he already said the subjective part. The point being, these were relaunches that meant something to Joe and Matt. They tickled our nerd pickles. And that's where we're going here. Joe Patrick, why don't you start us off with your number five? Oh, I remember the thing that I meant to say before I was stalling for time. And that is, we're talking about relaunches that have some meat, some merit, not just like, Marvel decided to end Amazing Spider-Man, and next month is also Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, number one it's, with this new person. Like, yeah, no, like these are these are books that were relaunched with purpose. Right, they're back. There's a new fresh take. There's a new creative team, and maybe we haven't seen them for a while, or maybe they were so screwed up we had no choice but to relaunch them. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I got a little bit of all of that in mind. So, Joe Patrick, why don't you get us started with your number five? My number five is Black Panther from 1998, uh, part of the Marvel Knights kind of imprint at Marvel that was helmed editorially by Jimmy Palmiotti and Joe Casada. This book was written by Christopher Priest and drawn initially by Mark Texiera. 
it is what has inspired every generation of Black Panther that has come after. Oh yeah, no, this, this is, is what lays this is the groundwork for the movie, even Black Panther in the MCU. There are so many things in the Black Panther run by Christopher Priest that we take for granted now it, that it's hard to imagine that prior to 1998, they did not exist. Yeah. Black Panther as a character was basically a non-entity. Yeah. I mean, like there was in the in the 90s. There was like, he was around Black Panther stuff before this. No question. And like groundbreaking Black Panther stuff. But this is like this is the series that established Black Panther as Marvel's Batman. Essentially, he was an A-lister. Yeah. Like and and suddenly because this book was a huge hit. Yeah. Yeah. Black Panther. Christopher Priest, Black Panther, a game changer. This was also a creator of color writing a character of color, like with a major relaunch at a time in 1998. Not, there wasn't a lot of uh, black people writing comics from Marvel at the time. So this was important. This was definitely a great series. Pick that one up. I love that. My first choice also comes from Marvel Knights. It will not be my only Marvel Knights choice today. It is Punisher. Welcome back, Frank. This was Punisher volume five, number one. So this was a little later in Marvel Knights. They relaunched this one in 2000 because, you know, Marvel and Prince, nobody knows they're going to stick around and they're going to sell. So let's not make any hardcore plans, right, guys? <laughs> you could all be fired tomorrow. Oh, Marvel Knights just happened to take off. Did really well. Before this was when we had Punisher in heaven as an agent of God. Well, to be fair, he was on earth. Well, he was on earth, but he had died and he went to heaven and he He came back an angel. (laughs) He had angel powers. He had angel powers. He summoned angel guns. I don't know if he was an angel. He had access to heaven's armory. (laughs) Heaven's heaven's arsenal. And it was such a bad storyline that they just had to push it all aside. The only people they could find to fix the Punisher at this point was a couple of foul-mouthed Irishmen, Steve Dillon and Garth Ennis. <laughs> now, Steve Dillon was a weird choice for Punisher art at the time because like, everything was still very flashy in this Marvel Knights relaunch, and they had a lot of flashy art going on. Dillon isn't that guy, but he brought the most amazing human aspect to this book. And it just took the Punisher back to the streets. What's the best thing about the Punisher? The Punisher killing bad guys. Mobster. Stop that. (laughs) The Punisher killing criminals. They just returned him to exactly what he was supposed to be. Didn't mess around. We got to meet Spacker Dave. We get to meet Mr. Bumpo, <laughs> you know, these ridiculous characters and watch the Punisher take apart the Nucci crime family. And it was just such a wonderful return to form for the character. Incredible covers by Tim Bradstreet. Absolutely yes. incredible. Yes. My number five, Punisher. Welcome back, Frank. Excelsior. Oh. <laughs> that is it for teaching 687 next week. We'll be talking back issue comics based on a theme when the cosmic long box returns. Hit us up on our live call-in show this Saturday, though. We call it THN cover to cover. Like I said, we do it Saturdays at 1030 Central. Check out our Discord for details. Joe Patrick, one of the things we talk about on the show is the question of the week. Please reset that for us. All right, I will. This week's question is courtesy of Brian Domingos. Rebrands. Remember when Thunderbolts changed from a team of reformed villains to a fight club? What's an ongoing book rebrand that you love or wish you could forget? Please keep your question of the week suggestions coming. If you can't make it to cover to cover live, shoot an MP3 to two at nerd at gmail.com or leave a message on the THN hotline. The number is 402-819-4894. But please keep those messages to two minutes. If you're new to this show and you only want to read comic books about Superman hugging people, I assure you, it gets boring fast. You know what's not boring? Listening to back issues of THN, you can find our entire collection in our digital long box over at twoheadednerd.com. THN, it's a listener-supported podcast. It would not be possible without the generosity of donors like our newest patron, Joe, Mr. Mick, 
Michalunas. You may have just uh, heard a little something we did with him last week. That he poor- probably donated so that he could hear the show he participated probably. in. Probably. We, I mean, we would have said it. Too. Oh, we made that free to everybody yeah. else. That guy's a t- on a teacher's salary, though, so it's goddamn irresponsible. If you like what you hear every week, it's easy to support the show. You can sign up to be a patron at patreon.com backslash two-headed nerd. Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to legendary Marvel and DC writer Peter David, who's currently in the hospital following a series of strokes Ah. and also a mild heart attack. His condition is improving at the last time I heard, though he's not out of the woods yet, according to his wife. A GoFundMe page has been set up in the family's behalf to help them stay on top of the medical bills and the household upkeep. And I'm happy to say that the turnout for that has been very strong, uh, but please give if you can. We will put that link in the show notes. Word to you, Mr. David. Everyone in the ziggurat is thinking about you. We love you, buddy. Yeah, we're not losing this guy this year. Otherwise, you and I are just going to walk into the magma. That might be the end of the show. <laughs> we can just say, we're done. All right, forget it, okay? Throw us into the tarpets. <laughs> Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just toss them into the magma. This is the Two-Headed Nerd signing off. Thank you.